uh, it's great to be back home because uh, uh, OSU is one of my old stomping grounds, and I have several of my students back there. <laughs> and they've heard, they know that I bleed scarlet and gray. Well, while researching Eyes Off the Prize, I saw something in the archives that over 30 years of historical writing told me was not supposed to be there. It was the NAACP fighting and fighting hard for the liberation of people of color in Asia and in Africa. And I first saw all of this and I said, whoa, what is this? And I stopped back, stopped and stepped back and first I was mystified because in the area of race relations and U.S. foreign policy, the, the struggle goes is that the NAACP turned and walked away in 1947 at the onset of the Cold War because these colonial liberation struggles were too tied, tied too closely to issues of communism and that the NAACP instead cut a deal with the Truman administration to get some civil rights concessions at home such as uh, the amicus curiae brief in Shelley v. Kramer, the deseg of the military executive order, the deseg of the uh, uh, federal bureaucracy, to get those kinds of concessions at home in exchange for putting the stamp, the might, the imprimatur of the nation's oldest, largest, strongest, most powerful civil rights organization, to put that stamp on Truman's Cold War foreign policy. A Cold War foreign policy, as this narrative goes, that was designed to prop up the colonial empires and crush these liberation struggles for people of color. Now, when you think about the implications of that, it says that the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, in fact, was in league with imperialist oppressors to, in fact, crush these same people of color in order to get just a token, a few talents of silver. It's almost like the Judas principle. Except I couldn't figure out as I'm sitting there in the Library of Congress, if they turn their back, why am I seeing all of these archival boxes marked Africa, 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 Asia, 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 Asia. Italian colonies, Italian colonies. Ethiopia, Ethiopia, Indonesia. I said, these all can't be rejection letters. <laughs> you know, where, you know, you open up a box and there's somebody from Nigeria saying, yo, help us out. And the NAACP saying, sorry, like Nina Simone bees that way sometimes. There's nothing I can do. And I just said, this doesn't make any sense. So while I was working on eyes off the prize, because you know how you got to stay focused. You can't take your eyes off the prize. You know, you got to keep them on the prize. And I'm working on eyes on the, off the prize. And, but I peeked in one of the boxes. I couldn't help it because I am naturally nosy. And anybody who's a story knows you've got to be naturally nosy. Um, and you want to be naturally nosy, but know that you don't have to get shot while you're reading somebody else's diary. It's a beautiful thing. And so, and so I peeked in one of the boxes, and it was the Somalis saying, man, we are up under it. We need your help. And there was the NAACP saying, whatever you need. I said, oh, this is not turn your back. This is not walking away. There is something happening here, something that we have missed. And as I began to, to, to think about how we have missed this, and I think there are several 
historiographical or historical methods problems, but one of them has been is that historians' focus has been on the left. Paul Robeson, W.E.B. Du Bois, one, because these are icons, you know, and historians like to write sexy. You know, we really like, like to, and, you know, and, and we like to write about something that has a wonderful arc. You know, so you get an arc of somebody who's had it all and has lost it. I mean, this heroic martyred arc, right, and lost it all in this struggle for good, freedom, justice, right? And this is Robeson. This is Du Bois. But what this focus on Du Bois and, and on Robeson have done is that it has eliminated the non-communist progressive center in American society during the height of the Cold War in the, uh, in the late 40s, early 50s. It is also focused, for instance, on a guy named Max Jurgen. Max Jurgen, who was also a communist after he got through being a YMCA man. <laughs> then he turned to being a communist. And then with, when the Cold War hit, Jurgen turned around and said, you know what? I'm not a communist. In fact, I'm an American. And he was such an American in the way that he aligned with, with James O. Eastland out of Mississippi. If you can imagine a black man in the late 1940s aligning with Eastland. To in fact herald apartheid as the perfect method to keep the Soviets out of Africa. So when you get a black man saying apartheid is a beautiful thing and writing incredible articles heralding the importance of apartheid and maintaining that system in order to, to keep the communists out of Africa, you know, we've got a problem. But for the NAACP, the NAACP looked at these issues and said, this is bigger than what the left is bringing. Because what we are looking at, we are looking at a transformation in the international system where the owning of a people by another people is inherently fundamentally wrong. The same system that props up Jim Crow in the United States is the same system that props up colonialism. And so we have to fight it. This is not a national bounded issue. It is an international issue. And as I said, what this, but what this erasure of the NAACP has done then, and it's done several things. One, it has created this void in our understanding of what it takes to create true political system transformations. The power that it requires to in fact have a system headed this one way and then to have these forces raging against this system to in fact flip that system onto another path. How does this happen? And by the focus on the left, it ignores the fact that this political center had access to greater resources in this struggle than the left could ever, ever generate. They were able to tap into networks that the left simply did not have. The next piece is that it has truncated our knowledge of the transnational alliances that this black political center was able to, to, to generate in order to create this transformation. I mean, so if we're only looking at the left, then we miss these alliances with, again, the progressive non-communist center. And by missing these alliances, then we again miss what it takes to transform a system. What we do have in our historiography is this 
this arc that goes from like W.E.B. Du Bois and Pan-Africanism and then it kind of gives a nod to Marcus Garvey and then it kind of rages and smooths in into, into Paul Robeson and the Council on African Affairs and then it erupts into SNCC, Black Panthers and us and then you get this kind of Michael Jackson moonwalk straight into <laughs> straight into the anti-apartheid movement of trans-Africa. That becomes the arc that we have in terms of African-Americans' engagement in these anti-colonial, anti-apartheid struggles. And nowhere in there is an organization that had over 500,000 dues-paying members. 500,000 dues-paying members. And we miss, therefore, how the NAACP, for instance, worked with the Saudis to get Libya's freedom. We miss, for instance, how they worked with the Somalis to try to get Somalia away from Italy. We miss, for instance, how the NAACP, in fact, began to divert its resources from its civil rights struggles by putting Constance Baker Motley, pulling Constance Baker Motley, for instance, off of the Brown decision issues and into to, to the work with the Kenyans in, uh, in the Mau Mau uprising. We miss all of this and more with this very limited historiographical arc. What we also miss is an understanding of the true nation-building options that were available to the decision-makers at that time, both from the metropole and from, what do you say, from the bottom up. We miss how they were conceptualizing what it takes to transform colonies into nations and what that timetable looked like because we have removed this political center out. We have removed how they thought through what a viable nation needed. And they didn't grovel at the feet of Western civilization because they saw major flaws in Western civilization because it was, in fact, Western civilization that brought slavery, that brought Jim Crow, that brought apartheid. So they didn't grovel at the feet of Western civilization, nor did they genuflect at the base of, of Soviet communism. In fact, they had a third way. And the fact that we don't understand that third way means that we have missed some opportunities about what it could have been, what it would take. And finally, the removing of this black political center. It doesn't, let me get back to this, is that we have no cognizance of what it takes to in fact fight for your institutional core values when the national norms around you are in fact opposed to your institutional core values. We've got an incredible literature about the destruction of Paul Robeson. We've got an incredible literature about the destruction on the Council on African Affairs. An incredible literature about the destruction of, of W.E.B. Du Bois. But how, because of their, fight, their anti-colonial fights. But how do you fight an anti-colonial struggle and not get taken down. We don't know that because we have removed this political center from our analyses of decolonization. The book I'm working on now, Bourgeois Radicals, seeks to fill that void. 
because it's to understand that part of what is driving the NAACP is its own vision, not just as the conscience. Yeah, I did that, didn't I? Not just as the conscience of America, but also as the conscience of the world because it saw a world that had been just hogtied by racism. And the NAACP believed that it had a vision of pan-racial justice and that in order to free this world so that it could in fact be liberated in terms of a truly democratic society, the NAACP believed that it had to put its resources and its energies into this global struggle. And in this third way in terms of what they thought about this global struggle, they thought that, that you had to have, the way that you transform colonies into nations is you had to do it on a human rights platform. And in this human rights platform, the NAACP's platform stayed the same from before the Cold War till after the Cold War. You know, because, so we have a false break in terms of understanding what the NAACP did. And what that, the, their platform said was, one, you had to have indigenous control of natural resources. That a people who did not have control over their own natural resources were a people who would continue to be exploited. So indigenous control over natural resources so that they could have the, the funds that they needed in order to build their infrastructure. That you had to have a quality educational system. A quality educational system because Africans and Asians had to have the education that they needed in order to run, manage, and govern their own countries effectively. That you had to have a quality health care system because the people who are sick, of people who are worked to death, you cannot have a viable, sustainable democracy if your folks are ill, if they don't have access to quality health care. That you also had to have labor standards you just can't put folks in a mine and work them until they turn blue. Anybody who's familiar, for instance, with the mines of Shinkalobwe in, in the Congo, you know what I'm talking about. And that you had to have land reform. Because what the NAACP also understood is that when you had very, very few owning very, very much, it put the very, very much having very, very little. Surprised I got through that one without stumbling. <laughs> and this was not just, and they said that if these pieces aren't put in place, what you're going to have then is you're going to have this crazy international system where people who are denied hope, people who are denied justice. It in fact is going to spiral down into a never ending cycle of violence, oppression, bloodshed, injustices, violence, oppression, <laughs> deprivation, injustices. And I mean, they said, and in this spiral, you will never ever be able to retain, to regain that, mar that march toward democracy. So you've got to have this human rights platform in order to make this transformation. And this doesn't what this uh, wasn't just the NAACP theorizing. I'm going to talk about one of the the cases that I've uncovered so far, and it deals with uh, Southwest Africa, which is current day Namibia. Now, in Southwest Africa, uh, Southwest Africa was a German colony in the early 20th century, and when Germany got into Southwest Africa. Uh, it, create, it, it committed genocide. 
uh, it wiped out 80% of the Herreros, 50% of the Namas, and 50% of the Bergdamaras. Because the Herreros, Namas, and Bergdamaras were like, man, this is an empty land. We're here. <laughs> you know, and, and the Germans were like, no, we want this. You die. Well, after the First World War, Germany's colonies were pulled away as part of the Treaty of Versailles and put in what was a brand new entity, the mandate system that Woodrow Wilson had crafted. And this mandate system said that these colonies had to be treated, one, as a sacred trust of civilization, and that, two, is that the, the administering power could not look at these mandates as if this is our colony, because this, in fact, was international territory. This was international territory that the administering power was supposed to provide the, the educational and all of the other needs that were needed in order to move this colony to self-governance and then independence. South Africa, for a variety of reasons, most of them that kind of real politique stuff, ended up, <laughs> yeah, ended up with Southwest Africa. Now, I know this is like... So you've got a nation that has already brutalized this African population, now being, being put in charge of 350,000 Africans in the colony, and said that this is under a mandate to prepare these folks for independence. Of course, that is not what South Africa did. Um, there were bombings, there were removals of Africans from their, their land. Uh, and, but by the time we get to the Second World War, and we get the trusteeship system, which comes under the UN, all of the other nations that were putting their, their mandates under this trusteeship system did so easily, willingly, in 1945. South Africa did not. Now, the NAACP was a, a, an official consultant to the U.S. delegation at that 1945 meeting in San Francisco. And the NAACP heard these rumblings from Jan Christian Smoots, who was the head of, of South Africa, that, you know, we're, uh, we're not going to put it under uh, the, the trusteeship system, you know? And then folks are like, well, why? And he said, because, you know, we're thinking about annexing it. And everyone's like, because everybody had already just dealt with Nazi Germany annexing everything around it. <laughs> and, and so already you're beginning to see South Africa's on one pathway, the rest of the world's on another one. And, but the UN was busy with other stuff, but they said, and I know you didn't mean that. Well, at the first meeting in 1946, Jan Christian walked in and said, yes, I did mean it. We're planning on annexing it, and we just wanted to let you know. NAACP started working overtime to try to figure out how to stop this thing, as did some of the other delegations. And as the other delegations in the UN stood up and said, uh-uh, you can't do this. This is international territory. You can't do this. Jan Christian Smith said, oh, I wasn't quite expecting that level of backlash because we had already uh, bullied and blackmailed the British into supporting us. So we really weren't expecting our Commonwealth brother, New Zealand, to like jump down our throats like that, but okay. So they came back at the next meeting and they said, we're here to ease your fears. I, I you know, I, almost Bill Clinton-ish, I feel your pain. You know, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> um, and, and, and instead, what he said, uh, what John Christian Smith said was, I understand you have some concerns. Well, we did a referendum. <laughs> and in that referendum, 100% of the Europeans who live in Southwest Africa want to be annexed. 
And already, you know, and I wish I had the facial structure to do this. You know how folks can raise that one eyebrow when you know somebody's lying. <laughs> and, and so the, the, the UN went, and 100%, can you get 100% of anybody to agree, particularly when you're talking about 35,000 people? That just, the numbers weren't already, but this is when the numbers really went off track. In terms of the 350,000 Africans who were there, Smoot said 85% of them want to be annexed. They want to feel the warm embrace of South African sovereignty. Now, this is when the UN went, oh, man, you are lying. And, and South Africa said, no, we're not. Trust us. Trust us. <laughs> and so the UN said, well, let us come in there and, and see. Let us put in a, a, a mission to come in, survey, do our own analysis. And, and, and the Americans were backing this. And, and, and South Africa says, no. No, we're going to annex, trust us, the Africans love us. NAACP said, oh man, what can we do, what can we do? Well, this is when they heard about a man named the Reverend Michael Scott, an Anglican minister um, who was in South Africa. He had South African citizenship, although he was born in Britain. And he had toyed, played with, been relatively close to the Communist Party in South Africa because the Communist Party was the only entity in the 1930s that was willing to take on the racism in South Africa head on. Now with the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact, he backed away from the Communist Party, but he did have that background. And one of the things that he did in the 1940s is he moved into an African shanty town, which is where no European was supposed to live according to the laws because it was absolutely uninhabitable. He was arrested. The Africans looked up and said, did we just see a white man get arrested for violating the residential segregation laws because he believes that we are human beings? Reverend Michael Scott's um, reputation was made. And so the chief, paramount chief of the Herreros, who was, had been exiled in Bechuanaland, he comes up, he, he asked to see Reverend Michael Scott when he got out of jail, and he said, look, you're a priest, you're an Englishman with South African citizenship. I need you to go where I cannot. I need you to get into Southwest Africa and find out what's really going on. I need you to then not only find out what's really going on, I need you to then go out and tell the world, which meant telling the UN. Now for Reverend Michael Scott, he said, okay. Now Reverend Michael Scott doesn't even have a parish anymore because his bishop yanked his parish away because he had been battling his bishop because the Anglican church had basically uh, appeased, compromised with, and accepted uh, the racial discrimination happening in South Africa. And so, but Reverend Michael Scott gets into Southwest Africa. He starts talking to the Herreros. He starts doing the documentary stuff, uh, finding out what's going on. And then it's time for him to get into the UN, to, to the US so he can go to the UN. Now this is gonna be a problem because the South Africans and the British had started sending their communist dossiers on Reverend Michael Scott straight to the State Department and to the Justice Department. This man's a commie. This man is, is, is a red commie. And so immediately they, they uh, denied his request for a visa. The NAACP, working with the ACLU, working with the India League, working with the Council on African Affairs, working with the Civil Rights Congress, those last two being black communist organizations, working with them started pounding hard on the State Department to let the Reverend Michael Scott in. 
The NAACP also went to the State Department and said, let me see if I get this right. You've got a God-fearing Anglican priest that you're saying is a godless communist. God-fearing, godless communist? Do we need to tell the New York Times we got a God-fearing, godless communist that the U.S. State Department has just banned? I, 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 you know, and the State Department just went, ooh, when you put it like that, <laughs> this is going to be hard. Ooh. And then they're trying to figure out how do we get them in, how do we get them in, as is the NAACP, because now they've got the State Department thinking, 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 thinking. And so what they decide to do, the NAACP, when they read through the headquarters agreement, they figured out that the U.S. has signed this this agreement saying anybody coming to the U.N. on official business gets to come into the United States. And so you can't ban them. And so they said, okay, we have to make this official. The NAACP sat on the board of directors of the India League. And from that, the head of the India League began to talk to Nehru. And from that, then, Reverend Michael Scott got put on the official Indian delegation to the U.N. And that's how they got him into the country. When we start talking about these kinds of transnational linkages, that's how they got him into the country. He presented his documentation to the U.N. And the U.N. looked at it and went, whoo, because what his documentation proved and what the South Africans had said were so fundamentally different and the, the, the U.N. took his documentations and began to, to list. They had 50 questions for the South Africans based on his documentation. And I won't go through all 50. I'll just hit some of the highlights. And so one of the, some of the highlights were um, South Africa. You said that you provided a world-class education for Africans, from basically kindergarten all the way up through the university. You, I mean, world class. You said you were spending millions and millions on this. But as we look at this documentation, it shows that there are absolutely no schools whatsoever funded for Africans out of the public funds. Instead, any schools that Africans can attend are provided for by missionaries. Can you explain the discrepancy? South Africa was like, next question. (laughs) Okay, you said that you were spending millions and millions and millions on making sure that Africans had the best land in Southwest Africa. You were buying up the best land. Can you explain to me how you got 90% of the people living on 42% of the land, the worst land. Or to put it another way, how you have 10% of the people living on 58% of the land, the best land. Can you explain that to me? Next question. Okay. You said that you were providing a range of services, meeting your your, uh, statutory requirements as a mandate power. Could you explain to me when we're going through this budget how 90% of the people are allocated 10% of the budget? About this time is when South Africa kind of stood up and walked out. 50 of those kinds of questions. Based on those questions, 
South Africa, one of the things that happened in South Africa is Jan Christian Smoots, because this is about 1948, Jan Christian Smoots loses the election. And Daniel Milan and the nationalists come to power. And the nationalists are, in fact, based on Nazism. They loved the Nazis. And so this is where you get the institution of apartheid. But the UN's not done yet. Because the front of the first things that Milan does is he issues legislation that, in fact, annexes Southwest Africa in all but name only. Reverend Michael Scott and the NAACP look at each other and said, oh, my, we have got to get back to the U.N. We have got to force the U.N. to do its job. Again, the the. Um, Department of Justice and the State Department continue to get these dossiers from the British and the South Africans about Reverend Michael Scott's communist ties. And so, again, they're ready to try to deny him a visa because this time, you know, he, he thought he could get in with the Indian delegation. But by this time, the British and the Americans had gone to the Indians saying, you don't really want to set this precedent, do you? I mean, you really don't want to have somebody from your own nation who can't stand you like going over to the Pakistani delegation, do you? And uh, the Indians said, nah, <laughs> yeah, you're kind of right on that one. So now here's Reverend Michael Scott just kind of hanging out here. Again, the NAACP that sat on the board of directors of the International League for the Rights of Man realized that the International League for the Rights of Man had consultative status with the UN and therefore was an official organization that the UN recognized. They got Reverend Michael Scott to become an official delegate for the International League for the Rights of Man. With that, they got him into the country, but they put all of these kind of visa restrictions around him. He could only stay in like midtown Manhattan in a, you know, like a four block range. He couldn't preach at the cathedral. He couldn't leave that four block range unless it was to get on a boat <laughs> to leave uh, the United States. Um, he couldn't um, go down to Washington. He Basically, was, he couldn't uh, publish his articles. In the, basically, he was silenced beyond the UN walls. NAACP looked at that and went, hmm, it is time to bring the mountain to Muhammad. Walter White, the head of the NAACP, his apartment was in Midtown Manhattan. I love folks who think. And so what he did was he held a series of cocktail parties and teas where he invited senators, congressmen, labor leaders, journalists to come to his apartment and meet the Reverend Michael Scott. Again, using these levers to begin to change the debate and the dialogue about racism in a global system, about how South Africa was an outlier. They got Reverend Michael Scott as well into the UN, uh, as I said, and there they did something absolutely unprecedented. They had a man who was not attached to a government, in fact, give direct testimony about the conditions in Southwest Africa. He had also filmed what was happening there and used that film as well to document the atrocities. With that, the UN went to the International Court of Justice seeking an, uh, an advisory opinion about the status of Southwest Africa. That opinion came back and said that South Africa did not have the right to annex, but it also had to uh, keep providing information to the UN. 
The next wave of this is that the South Africans get angry again. I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version. It's kind of intense. They get angry again. And then at the next meeting in 1951, Channing Tobias, who is the chairman of the board of directors of the NAACP, is named to the U.S. delegation to the U.N. Not only is he named to the U.S. delegation to the U.N., but he is put in charge as the chair of the the part of the delegation dealing with colonial issues. And when that meeting happens, and Tobias said, you know, I'm a team player. And you can count on me to play the team game. He's talking to his State Department handlers. He said, but you know, there are some times when my conscience is going to dictate what I'm going to do. And the State Department said, okay. Well, turned up the issue of Southwest Africa was on the agenda again. And the British and the Americans had basically made a deal in October that what they were going to do, because they started getting... Uh, rumblings that the the fourth committee of the UN, the colonial committee, was in fact going to invite the Africans themselves to in fact give direct testimony to the United Nations about the conditions under which they were <laughs> under which they were living, and this is un truly unprecedented. The British are looking at this, thinking, you know, the last thing we want are colonial subjects to be able to do an end run around the metropole to get to an international organization to talk directly about what is happening there. But the fourth committee did it. The fourth committee invited the, the head of the Herreros, Namas, and Bergdameras to come to the UN and testify. Um, and as this debate is happening, um, the British are doing all of the Roberts Rules of Orders because this is what they've worked out. The British would do the kind of Roberts Rules of Order that can just totally screw up where people don't know whether somebody needs to... Do I need to second that or do I need a motion? You know, you, you know how folks get all flummoxed up in this. And, and then the U.S., because the U.S. had enormous power in the U.N. The U.S. would then come riding in like... And, and, and to, the, to the British aid and, and between the British and the Americans, they were supposed to silence that debate and stop it. So just as the British are doing their, their Robert's Rules of Order thing, then they kind of look behind waiting for the American delegation to set up, you know, stand up and go da 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 Just as Benjamin Garrick was getting, this, getting ready to stand up, Channing Tobias said, sit down. And because he was the chair, Garrick sat down. And the British, you know, because they had this thing scripted, and what, what just happened here? Uh, and so then Francis Sayre goes to stand up. Channing, sit down. Francis sat down. By this time, the British are out there on their own. The rest of the delegations are sitting around the table, and they're seeing this. They're witnessing it, and they're like, ooh, (laughs) field day. And I mean, they ate the British alive. The vote was something like 37 to 7 to invite the Herreros, Namas, and Bergdameras to come. Now, of course, the South Africans stopped them, even though the NAACP had provided the money for uh, the uh, Chief Jose Kotako and his group to, in fact, come up to Paris where the meeting was being held. But what this began to do was to begin to set in motion that transformation of South Africa as a valued ally of the West into an international pariah. As the, um, as the UN began to set up these committees, 
to not only investigate Southwest Africa, an uh, international colony, but also to investigate apartheid, which is then to actually go into the national sovereignty of a nation, to say the UN has authority to begin to look at this. Now, this is a long, hard arc, but this is part of what the NAACP was doing. Now, I have focused in on this one, but I'm seeing other pieces as well. I'm seeing the, the NAACP, for instance, working with uh, the Somali Youth League um, and Abdullahi Issa. I'm seeing the NAACP working with um, in Indonesia to try to get the Dutch uh, to pull Marshall Plan dollars from the Dutch as they were trying to regain control of Indonesia. I'm also seeing it, it looks like I'm seeing it as well in Tunisia, in Morocco, and in Kenya. I mean, this is a global kind of vision. So clearly, as the NAACP is active in this, in this kind of global freedom struggle, then I had to ask myself, how? <laughs> how were they able to do this? How were they able to do this when other anti-colonial activists were in fact being destroyed by the McCarthy witch hunts that in fact aligned anti-colonial struggles with communism and made them synonymous? How were they able to maneuver in this really, really tough environment? I think the first thing was that it was the NAACP's Americanness. The NAACP was staunchly anti-communist, viscerally anti-communist. They hated the communists from at least back to the 1930s, at least hated the communists. And they had their own internal purges, and I'm not um, washing over that at all. But it was that sense of Americanist and that they had never come out as Du Bois and Robeson had praising the Soviet Union that in fact gave them some leeway to begin to maneuver in this. But even their Americanness could not abide by what uh, Max Jurgen was doing by praising apartheid. They had enough sense of racial justice to realize that you couldn't do that. So I think the first piece, as I said, was that Americanist piece that they brought. The second piece that I think was that the U.S. never saw itself as a colonial power. The U.S constantly considered itself an anti-colonial power that just happened to be kind of strapped between what they wanted in the Cold War struggle. And, and they held up uh, Philippine independence as proof that they were not colonizers, but caretakers. And the NAACP saw this and realized that there were folks, this kind of ambivalence, realized that there were folks in the State Department and in U.S. delegations that they could begin to work with to in fact begin to shape and reframe uh, State Department policy, U.S. foreign policy on this issue. So much so, for instance, that uh, when it came to the Reverend Michael Scott, they had convinced Eleanor Roosevelt, who at, at first was very leery of the Reverend Michael Scott because she had seen all of the, the reports coming in from MI5 that this was a communist. In fact, she said, oh, he's a commie. I don't want to meet with him. And the NAACP, no, you got to talk to this man. It got to the point where she was sending in, as was Averill Harriman, U.S. ambassador, sending in huge donations, laundered through the NAACP, anonymous donations, to support Reverend Michael Scott's work here in the struggle for Southwest Africa. They were, what they also did was they got to the point where the State Department began to ease up on his visa uh, restrictions. Because State Department officials were saying he is the best conduit for information about what is really going on. 
So seeing that ambivalence, not seeing the U.S. as this kind of monolithic colonial hegemon, but in fact saying, you know, there are some cracks here, and let's exploit those cracks so we can begin to make headway in this. The third thing that allowed them to move was the creation of the United Nations. The United Nations, particularly as India, began to really assert its uh, prominence in these anti-colonial struggles. Created this, this, this kind of forum, as one uh, State Department official said, created a forum where the issues of colonialism could be in fact uh, exposed and explored to the point where colonialism was no longer viable. And so the UN provided that form. You had a series of committees coming out of the UN looking at colonial independence, looking at uh, apartheid, looking at uh, uh, what was happening, in fact, in colonies, in fact, expanding its own mandate beyond the trustee um, colonies into colonialism in general. The fourth factor, I think, oddly enough, was the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was a double-edged sword, and I know that's shocking. Uh, the Soviet Union was realized that this anti-colonialism block that was happening in the UN was something that the, the Soviets you know, could, could give a lot to but not have to expend a lot of resources on, and it really wasn't going to affect them. And so they began to put their, their uh, weight and their might behind this anti-colonial block in the UN. On the other hand, see, that was the good part. <laughs> On the other hand, the Soviet Union could not abide by human rights. And on this, you know, we don't talk about this too often, but on this, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were in agreement because the U.S. had Jim Crow. And the U.S. did not want the U.N. looking in at the U.S. and seeing what Jim Crow was wreaking on the black population. Just did not want to see it. The Soviets had pogroms. They had gulags. They had it. And they didn't want it. So they worked together in 1945, in fact, to come up with the domestic jurisdiction clause that said that the U.N. did not have the authority to look at what is happening internally. And so what happens then is that as you get this push for colonial independence, you also get this stamping down of human rights as a viable framework. The end result, I believe, is what I, I consider to be kind of this malformed hybrid where you eventually get the independence, the political independence of these colonies without the human rights protections that these colonies need in order to form politically viable, economically viable states. There are other implications to this. And then I'm going to end it soon. The other implications, I believe, are that as the NAACP is waging this struggle, you get this internal power struggle within the NAACP, an internal power struggle that weakens it as it begins to move into the 1960s. And what that power struggle did mean is that it couldn't play the kind of role that it needed to play in the movement domestically as well as in the movement globally. And the way that the NAACP fought, think it, think about it, uh, meetings with State Department officials. Now this kind of behind the scenes, quiet diplomacy, it, it didn't have the kind of visual piece that you see from mass demonstrations. And so as the civil rights movement is moving along, 
the young folks in the in the civil rights movement who would lead into to, to black power, they don't see any of the kind of spectacular martyrdom that had happened on the left. And so as they're trying to link up these struggles for um, civil rights in the United States with colonial independence in Africa, for instance, I say that you get a very kind of energetic process that is high on rhetoric and short on reality. And, and so to begin to kind of understand the fissures between these movements. In the end, I think, We'll never ever understand any of this stuff about transnational linkages, about nation building on a human rights platform, unless we begin to reincorporate the black political center into this struggle for colonial liberation. Thank you. I'm get some water and I'll take questions.